The title of the message of our first study in the book of Galatians is Who is Right? Live by the law or live by faith? And we're really talking about work-based religions. And this was one of the first conflicts that there were in the early church. The gospel was preached basically by Paul in the region of Galatia. And they were saved by faith. They trusted in Christ. And then these agitators came in behind Paul and they told people, if you really want to be saved, if you really want to be in Christ, then you need to be baptized. And I'll talk about the difference between their baptism and what we call baptism. Circumcised, you have to keep the law of Moses, the Mosaic law, especially the food and the festivals. There were seven feasts that they had every year. And Colossians 2.16 deals with this very issue as well when it says, let no one judge you according to festivals and new moons and Sabbaths because of this group of people that were traveling around trying to make people get saved by works. Now, you might think that we wouldn't have any of that around today, that since it was tackled by one of the first books written in the New Testament, Galatians, you would think that today there wouldn't be anybody who was saying, you guys need to keep the law. But there are all kinds of people who say that. There are all kinds of groups who say it. And then there are all kinds of groups that add other kind of works to it. Here's the thing about grace. And Ephesians tells us we are saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. Here's the thing about grace. It's very hard to boast in it. It's very hard to say, I've, I've been saved by grace because grace is undeserved favor. So as soon as I start boasting that I've been saved by grace, it doesn't make sense. But if I can say, well, I really know that you've got to keep portions of the law and be saved by grace. Then now I've gained knowledge. I have understanding. Now my pride gets involved. Whether you want to add tongues to salvation, baptism to salvation, parts of the law to salvation, um, it, belonging to a certain denomination, belonging to a certain cult to denominations. All of those are work-based religions, and the book of Galatians is going to fight against that. In, in fact, I want to give you a verse as we start that will really help to set the tone of this book, and it's Galatians 2.21. And I want to just read it here, and then I want to talk about a few basic things about the book of Galatians. So here Paul says, I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. That's the tone of the book of Galatians. I don't say, Paul says, I don't set aside the grace of God. Because if you could be saved by the law, then Christ died in vain. And that tells you everything you need to know really about the book. It's like the theme verse. It's the tone of the letter. Paul is writing this and he is, there's no other way to say it. He's not happy. Normally, he's mad. Normally, when Paul writes a book, and if you've been with us in our studies of Philippians or First and Second Thessalonians, he normally starts off by saying, I thank God for you and I pray for you and your faith and your love and all the things that you are doing. You know, he kind of gives them that, like, I just thank God for all of these things that you're doing. And then he gets into, after a long, pretty long section of encouragement, he might get into some correction or he might get into some clarification. 
like the book of Philippians, the book of 1 Thessalonians, is almost all clarification. There's no correction. This book is all correction. He gives us six verses, five verses really, of an intro, and then he gets into it. Let me just give you a few things, a few facts about the book of Galatians. Galatia is a region, not a city. He didn't write this book to a particular city. It's a region in the middle of modern-day Turkey, what we would call Asia Minor. So Lystra, Derby, the Antioch that's in Turkey. There's an Antioch that's kind of above Jerusalem on the coast. And then there's an Antioch in Turkey that's in Galatia. So when Paul was stoned in either it was Lystra or Derby, they stoned him and drug him outside of the city as if he was dead. That happened in the region of Galatia. Paul suffered a lot while he was in this region. The second thing is that Galatians is where Paul was from. We know that Paul is from Troas, uh, excuse me, Tarsus, Saul, Paul of Tarsus. Tarsus is a Roman city. That's why Paul had Roman citizenship. Later on in his life, he would say to a, a soldier who's getting ready to beat him with rods, you're going to beat a Roman citizen? And the soldier's like, oh, I didn't know you were a Roman citizen. I paid for mine. And Paul says, I was born a Roman citizen. And so Paul didn't get beaten. Paul wasn't willing just to, to suffer for suffering's sake. He wanted his suffering to be used for God, but he was not willing just to be suffered for suffering's sake. But Paul was from this region of Galatia. So maybe it makes a little bit of sense of why he settled in there. He was very familiar with it. He knew the Jews of the region. He knew the Gentiles of the region. The third thing is that Paul planted the churches in Galatia. And it was early on in his missionary journeys. He went through this region and he would go to the synagogues first and he would argue that Jesus was the Messiah according to the Bible. When he was talking to people who knew the Old Testament, he would talk to them about the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. And some would become saved. But then he would go to the Gentiles and he would preach Christ to them and many Gentiles got saved. So Paul planted these churches there. Again, maybe that gives us some idea of why he was so angry because Paul is angry in this letter. Uh, the fourth thing is that the letter deals with false doctrine. That's what this whole letter is about. That, and that is what works-based religion is. It is false doctrine and it will be called that in this book. Clearly, Paul's dealing with it. The next is that Paul is angry as he writes this letter. There's two things that, there's three things that he says. He, he, he called, in the Phillips translation of the Bible, in chapter three, he calls them idiots. We know it as, oh, foolish Galatians, who bewitched you that you would so easily turn away from Christ? That's how we know that statement. But in the Phillips translation, it's, you know, oh, foolish idiots. How can you? I mean, he uses the word idiots in his translation because the Greek word is so strong because he's so angry. And then he says, and as for those who trouble you, because one of the things they want them to do is be circumcised in order to be saved. As for those who trouble you, I wish they would go all the way and cut it off. Now, I put that pretty bluntly, but that's what he's saying. He's saying, make yourself a eunuch. Just go ahead. And there were people in their day who believed that they were serving their pagan gods by becoming eunuchs. And I don't want to go into too much detail, but it's, yeah. Anyway, you can figure it out. 
Now, Paul's angry as he writes this letter because they have robbed people away from the grace of God, which they were saved by. And he's upset. The theme of the book is from that great passage. I think it's out of Habakkuk. The just shall live by faith. Paul does a huge section like the book of Galatians in Romans where he talks about the same thing. And Martin Luther, when he was a monk, read it and realized that that was a moment for him when he realized it's by faith that I am saved, not by any works that I do. He had been trying to work his way into the kingdom of God and suddenly realized it was by faith. The just shall live by faith. And that really is the theme of this book. So let's go ahead. I want to do two things now. I want to take a look at our text, which is the first six verses. And then I want to take a look at what Galatians has to say about this argument against keeping the law. So we're just going to kind of make our way through seven different verses and try to piece together an overview, starting in the first part of the book and going to the last part of the book. In other words, we'll back, we'll back up some and try to see the book as a, as a picture and we'll kind of get an idea as to where Paul is going with this whole thing. So it starts off in verse 1 and Paul says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Right away, there's something different about this letter. Not that Paul doesn't say in other letters, Paul, an apostle, but immediately he defends his authority, which he doesn't do often. Where, where, where do we get authority from? You know, it's interesting. Romans tells us, obey the authorities that are, the authorities that are over you in Romans 13. Paul writes that to Romans living in Rome under the corrupt leadership of Nero and whoever was before Caliglia or whoever it was that was before Nero. And I think that there's a misunderstanding about this, you know, respect authority. God is the ultimate authority and God gives authority to leaders. They are, in essence, using his authority. Doesn't mean they make good decisions. It doesn't mean that we would like everything that they would do, but it means that we do need to respect the authority. So where does authority come from? It comes from God. There are people given authority by a school or by, um, by some kind of a magistrate that really don't have any authority because God didn't call them and place them there. And there are people that weren't given any authority that have authority because God is the ultimate authority that gives it. And so Paul is not one of the original apostles. When he says, Paul, an apostle, he's saying, I am among Paul, excuse me, I'm among Peter and James and John, and I have been an apostle by God who called me. It was him who set it up. And he probably does this because these agitators were coming in and saying, where's Paul get his authority from? He wasn't with Jesus so where does he get his authority from? And so Paul defends his authority first of all. In 1 Corinthians 9, 5, he says, do we have the right to take along a believing wife? This is Paul, and I'm not going to get into the, the context of it. That's not important for what point I'm trying to make, but I want you to show you that Paul was seeing himself as an apostle, one of the apostles. He says in 1 Corinthians 9, 5, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife? 
as do the other apostles. So Paul is not married. He, he probably had been married because he was part of the Sanhedrin when he was younger and you had to be married to be a part of that. But he was not married at this point. And it says, um, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas. So he says, don't I have the right to bring along a believing wife like Cephas, who is Peter, like the brothers of Jesus, which is Judas and James. James is the, the pastor of the church in Jerusalem and like the other apostles. So he believed that his authority was the same authority as the other apostles. And he starts his letter off that way. In verse two, he says, and all the brethren who are with me. Now, Paul is in essence is saying, I'm not alone. They attack my authority. They say, who is this Paul? But I've got Barnabas and Silas and Timothy and Titus and all the other people who are with him, the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. And there we get, that's not a church, it's churches that are in this region, Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when you're reading this first chapter and you're not stopping to pause to talk about it, you get the sense that Paul's kind of going through the motions at this point. In, in all of his letters, almost all of them, he says grace and peace to you. Grace is the Greek, the standard Greek greeting. Peace is the standard Jewish greeting. When you say shalom, when you go to Israel, you'll say shalom instead of hi. And that's peace. And they'll say shalom back to you. That's how you say, that's the greeting. And in their day in Greece, you said grace and you re responded back with grace. And grace, of course, is undeserved favor given by God. And peace, of course, peace with God and the peace of God is something that we all desire. And so Paul used this as a standard greeting. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ and our Lord Jesus Christ. And the word Lord, the, the book of Galatians was one of the first books written. There's a reference here to a council. And if it is the council in Acts 15, then this was written somewhere in the early 50s, 53 or 54 of the first century. If the council is the one in, in Acts 12 and 13, there's another council that's there, then it's written somewhere around 48. If that's the case, that makes this the first book written, not 1 Thessalonians. That's how long ago this was written. Really interesting. As a kind of a little bit of a side note, I, um, when I started preaching in the, in the 80s and I did my first study in the book of Galatians, all the scholars, I'm talking about the um, liberal scholars and the school of higher critics, all said Paul didn't write the book of Galatians. There's no way that he wrote it. So I'm doing my groundwork for it now. I go back and I look and there is a strong consensus that it's a Paulinian letter. And when you and, and to have a scholarly consensus, it's got to be above 90% of the scholars. And I'm not talking about Christian scholars. I'm talking about secular scholars. There literally is almost no one that says that Paul wasn't the author of this, which brings the gospel of Jesus Christ being clearly taught with a high Christology because there are people that say that the Christology of Christ started off just really basic and was added to. But this proves that there was a high Christology very early on. So does this, the book of First Thessalonians, by the way. So uh, he says, uh, grace and peace to those to you through our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And what made me think about it was the word Lord there. That word would be used in Greek to mean God. 
you have our God and Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. The same way they used it in Hebrew as well, by the way. Who gave himself for our sins. So he gets right to the chase. The, the, Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins. That's what his, his coming to this earth was. That's what the death on the cross was, was that he gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present age. And I think we could say the same thing. He's writing to the first century churches that they had been delivered from that present wicked age, evil age, and we have been delivered from our present age. So much so that we are no longer to be conformed by this to this world, but we are to be transformed by the, the, the power of the living God. He says that this, this salvation and this deliverance from this present age, according to the will of God and the Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. It was God's will that you would be delivered from this present age. We, we can make that argument really easily. The Bible says in two different places that God's desire is that all would be saved and all would come to the knowledge of the truth. We're even told by Peter, the reason that God is waiting as long as he is before he returns to this earth is so more people get saved. God is not slack concerning his promises, he says, but God desires all to be saved and all to come to the knowledge of the truth. God's will is for people to get saved. And God opens up the hearts of people. When Paul preached to Lydia in Philippi, the Bible says, and God opened up Lydia's heart. When we shine for Christ, when we're the light of the world, when we share with people, we might think it's our message or we might not think we're any good at it, but it's God that opens up the hearts of people. And he says that it was God, the Father's will, that you would be set free from this present evil age. Then he says in verse five, to whom be the glory forever and ever, amen. So he just goes into a little praise, talks about God, the work that he's done. After amen, he's got no encouragement for the Galatian churches at all. He starts off saying, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. He's going to make it clear as we make our way through the book of Galatians that that different gospel is people telling them that they are supposed to live under the law. And he's like, I marvel that you so soon, I just left you. And here we are. They have actually, the, the Galatians had these false teachers come in and they believed them and they did it. Some of them had been circumcised. Some of them had started doing Jewish things. Some of them had in, if you were a Gentile, and you wanted to become Jewish, you could do it. You had to do four things. You had to be baptized, circumcised. You had to keep the Mosaic law, and especially the, the festivals and the food dietaries. And you could become considered Jewish. On, on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit's poured down and they all speak in tongues, there's a bunch of people that are there who are Jewish. And they say, we're all from these places and we heard you in our own language saying these things. So the tongues of Acts chapter 2 is actual human languages that people could hear and understand. And they heard them glorifying and magnifying God in their own languages. And these are Gentiles who have become Jewish who got saved. So we could say that mixed in with Jews who had been Jewish from birth and Gentiles who became Jew, Jews made up the early church. 
in essence, these Judaizers go to the Gentiles that have come to Christ and said, you guys need to become Jewish. You need to, that's what you need to do in order to really seal this salvation. The grace of Christ isn't enough. And so Paul marvels that they so easily will turn away from it. Now, scholars have called these group of people Judaizers. But they've, they, they've turned away from that now. They don't really call them Judaizers anymore. Most of them don't. Because Judaizers would be those that are not proselytized, not, not Gentiles that became Jews, but it would be Jews. And we, we don't know which group this is. Is it a group of Gentiles who became Jews who's bringing this in? Or is it a group of Jews from birth that are bringing this into the Gentiles? We don't know. And so Judaizers would be Jews from birth. And so now you'll, when you read scholarly work on Galatians, they'll use the word agitators a lot instead of Judaizers. And that's the distinction between them. So if I use Judaizers, you know that I'm just talking about anyone who was, was born a Jew or became a Jew, if I use the word Judaizers. I'm going to try not to, but you get it. All right, Jesus, um, the... I told you already the things that Jews needed to do from birth in order to become saved. Now, I want to spend a few minutes before we get into these things, uh, this overview of the book of Galatians, talking about the council in Acts chapter 15. In the region of Galatia came someone while Paul was there and argued with them about keeping the law. I'm going to read you the first two verses of Acts chapter 15. A certain man came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small discussion or dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So they have a dispute with this guy and this isn't the first time that they ran into it. And so they want to go back and meet with all of the disciples to determine what do we do with the Gentiles? The first people saved were Jewish. And then in Acts chapter 10, Peter is called to the house of Cornelius. And while he's preaching to Cornelius, the Holy Spirit falls upon them and they start to speak in tongues. And Peter later on says, God had given them the spirit. Why should I hold anything back? I baptized them. So he didn't think they needed to become Jewish in order to be saved. He baptized the Gentiles because they had been filled with the Holy Spirit. Now comes people along telling them that that's not right. And so Paul and Barnabas have it out with them. And they finally decide, let's go back and meet with the apostles. Probably because these guys were saying, well, you guys have no authority. The apostles are the ones that have authority. So Paul's like, well, then let's go talk to them. Because Paul had already gone back to them. You learned this earlier in Acts. Paul knew that if his message was different than the rest of the disciples, that he would be wrong. So he went back and checked. And we get that earlier in the book of Acts, 12, chapters 12 and 13. So now let me read you verses 19 through 20 of Acts 15. This is the conclusion of their meeting. They go back to Jerusalem. They lay out their arguments. You can read chapter 15 later to get all their arguments. And this is the conclusion. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles. This is the apostles and the leaders in Jerusalem. 
Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those who are among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from, polluted, uh, from things polluted by idols and sexual immorality and from things strangled and from blood. Now, here's the important thing to understand. These four things they tell them, it doesn't mean that they were, doesn't mean they were inspired. Doesn't mean that these, these apostles, whenever they said something, it wasn't like whatever they said was, was inspired and had to be the truth. Later on, Paul will say, the only requirements is that we would take care of the poor. The very thing that we wanted to do. He's going to say that in the book of Galatians. And later on, he'll talk about eating food offered to idols. And basically, Paul's going to say in Corinthians, stop asking. If you go over to someone's house and they're going to serve you a steak or lamb chops, if you're in Israel, that you don't say, was this offered to an idol? You just go in and eat it. Don't worry about it. For your conscience sake, just go ahead and eat it. He also says, if you don't want to eat food, sacrifice idols, you're free not to. And if you want to eat food, sacrifice idols, you're free to. And again, we could get into that discussion. But, and from things strangled, this is just kosher again. You drain the blood from an animal in order for it to be kosher. And so they're not necessarily, they're saying to do that, but later on it's dealt with that there's, there's really no requirements that are given to them at all. And um, it, they go on to say then, um, since we have heard that some of, of us from us have troubled you with words, unset, um, unsettling your souls, saying you must be circumcised to keep the law to whom we give no such commandments. So the apostles are completely on Paul's side. We give no such commandments. And then let me read to you a portion of the letter they sent to the, the churches in Galatia. This is from the apostles. And this is verses 28 and 29 of chapter 15. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than the necessary things that you abstain from the offending idols, from blood and from things strangled and from sexual immorality which is re reiterated in Galatians that sexual immorality is a work of the flesh. He says, if you keep the, um, yourself free from these, you do well, farewell. So the apostles made the stand early on, Acts chapter 15. This council took place somewhere in 40, 47 or so. So early on that they did not have to keep the law. Now let's back up a little bit and let's look at seven things that the book of Galatian teaches us on this topic of liberty, grace, or working by the law. And the first one that we find is the passage that we've already covered that the gospel of Christ has been perverted in Galatians 1, 6, and 7. I'm going to read you the next verse now. He says, I marvel that you are turning so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. Then verse 7, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. He says, I'm so, I, I marvel that you so soon turn to a different gospel, but it's not another. It's been perverted. It's a perverted gospel. So anytime anyone adds any kind of works to freedom, the, the grace of Christ saving you by faith, it is a perversion of the gospel of Christ taught clearly. And we're, we're going to get into more details on that as we make our way through the book. The second thing the book of Galatians tells us about this conflict that was going on that's dealing with 
is that Galatians declares the pure gospel. The book of Galatians tells you what the pure gospel is. This is in Galatians 2, 16. Knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Christ Jesus. You're going to notice these, these statements are as clear as they can be. Paul say, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus. Now, when Paul says, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, the reason he's saying that is because Paul is a Pharisee. Paul was on the Sanhedrin. Paul is a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's a Benjamite. And so Paul says, look, these guys come to you, and this is why some believe that they are not Jews that were born Jewish, because Paul says, even we, someone who was born a Jew, who had a, a Hebrew of Hebrews, he says, a, a mother and a father who were Hebrews, even we come by faith. If the law was good for somebody who proselytized it to Judaism, how much better would it be for someone who grew up in it? He says, even we believe in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. So he repeats what he said earlier. For by the works of the law, no flesh is justified. Again, can it be any clearer? By the works of the law, no flesh is justified. The third thing is the one I referenced earlier, and that is don't be bewitched. This is an interesting word. Kind of don't, don't let people put a spell on you. And I'm not going to sing the song now, even though I want to. Um, this is what happens with false doctrine. It sounds good. There's always a hook in false doctrine. There's always a, this is what you don't get from them. This is what's going to help you. Whether it's some kind of a false doctrine about demonization of Christians or whether it's a, a false doctrine about works-based religion, there's always something for the flesh. There's always something that you could go, yeah, I kind of like that. And sometimes because of that, it's hard for us to identify false doctrine. And sometimes when I'll point out to people, this person teaches a false doctrine, they'll get upset. I, I, I've listened to them and I learned from them. Well, good, but where's your loyalty lie? Does your loyalty lie with God? Did they tell you something that was true and you believed it and you didn't know the false teaching they were teaching? But just because you receive something good, are you now going to be loyal to a person who's teaching something false? Or does your loyalty lie with God and his word? That you would say, even though I may have learned from that person, people can get saved from a false teacher because God honors the faith of the individual over the false teacher who mixes in truth with his, his false doctrine. Otherwise, you wouldn't receive it at all. If it was just straight lies, you would see it clearly. They're more nuanced than that. They quote a lot of scripture. They throw in things that are true. Then they throw in the arsenic. And it pollutes the whole thing. And so he says to them, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you or put a spell on you that you should not obey the truth. This is what false doctrines do. Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. He says, we were there with you and we taught you before you ever were bewitched by them that Jesus was crucified for you. 
He goes on to say, this only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Had they received the Spirit of God when Paul went there by the works of the law? The answer would be no. By the hearing of faith, yes. And so then he says, are you so foolish having begun in the Spirit that you now being made perfect by the flesh? You start with the Spirit of God and then you're going to add it on so when someone comes to you and says, listen, I know that you've, you've received Jesus, but unless you go to church on, on Saturday, unless you keep the Sabbath, then you can't really be saved. Or unless you're baptized, you can't really be, baptism is part of salvation. Are you so foolish that you think you could start in the spirit and then end in the flesh? Now your argument may be, well, but we have works we're supposed to do after we're saved. And that's certainly true. There are things we do. We need to be baptized. We should be baptized. I'll put it that way. We should be baptized. But that's just, a, that's just a fruit that we've been Christians. James says in the book of James, show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. He doesn't mean he got his works by faith. He doesn't say that. He simply says there's evidence that you have real faith by works that happen in your life. But Paul says you can't complete the work of grace in by the works of the law. The fourth thing that I want us to look at is that he brings up the Abraham argument in the book of Galatians. The Abraham argument is this, that God came to Abraham and said, Abraham, I want to bless you. And Abraham kind of was a little uppity with God. It's interesting. It's in Galatians, excuse me, it's in Genesis 15, verses 1 through 5. He gets a little uppity with God. He's like, how can I be blessed when this Eleazar is my heir? He's like 75 years old, maybe older, because he was called by God when he was 75. So he's some older than that. And God's like, I'm going to bless you. And he's upset because he has no kids. And his name, by the way, Abram, means father. He's like, my name's father. I don't have any kids. And you're telling me you're going to bless me. And so God says, Abraham, look up. Look at the stars. They're, your descendants are going to be like the stars of the sky. And then Abraham, the Bible says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. That's when Abraham was saved. When Abraham believed what God said about his descendants. That's why he's the father of faith. Because he was saved by believing God. How are you and I saved? By believing God. That's why when we believe in God, we are the true descendants of Abraham. And people who don't believe in God but try to keep the law in order to be saved are not really descendants of Abraham. They might be through the flesh, but not spiritually. Because Abraham was saved not by doing anything. Now you might say, well, he was circumcised. Yeah, when he was 99 years old. <laughs> which is no fun at all, by the way. 99 years old? You circumcise babies when they're eight days old. They have no memory of the trauma. 99 years old? So if he was saved some 20 years before he was circumcised, then circumcision is not the way he was saved. And their argument would go that God gave Abraham circumcision. Why did he do that? The same reason that we have baptism. We have baptism as a sign. You go under the water as a sign of the old man, the old woman dying. You come out of the water as a symbol of the newness of life that you've been given. Circumcision was the cutting away of the flesh so that you could live by the Spirit. That was the idea. 
You're not supposed to live by your flesh. So you cut the flesh away. Now, people may argue, I don't understand it. Why did God do that? Listen, we don't live in the Bronze Age period, which I'm going to give a praise God for that, by the way. We don't live 3,500 years ago when Abraham was circumcised. So trying to figure out today why God would require a man living that long ago to do such a thing, I don't even know if that's completely possible because we just aren't in their culture. We just can't see their culture. We don't know all the things that are going on. I don't think we can make all the arguments. We do know that God said later on, I will circumcise your heart and cut away the flesh from your heart. That is that you don't live by the flesh, but you live by the spirit. So the Abraham argument is brought up and here's what he says in Galatians 3, 6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. The point that Paul will go on to make is this happened before he was circumcised. So circumcision cannot be the way in which you are saved. The fifth thing that we want to look at is that those under the law needed to be redeemed. Paul here, it's that, it's that statement he made earlier. Even we have to come through Christ. So he says this in Galatians 4. See, we're making our way pretty well through the book now. In Galatians 4, 5, and 6, he says, to redeem those who are under the law. His argument's pretty clear. Those under the law are being redeemed by Christ. If the law could save you, why would the, those under the law have to be redeemed? He says, to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. That's a great passage. God sent his son so you could be made sons and daughters of the living God. God sacrificed his son who cried out, Abba, which is the informal Greek for father. It's like dad in, in Hebrew. Sorry, Hebrew. It's the, it's the informal Hebrew for father and that you and I or they under the law were given the spirit where they became sons and daughters where out they cried dad we became children of God and Jesus is the son of God the sixth thing is that we fulfill the law in a new way now you and I don't fulfill the law the way they used to which was keeping all 613 of the commandments and, and by the way, why, why, did, why were there all those commandments? Because they came out of slavery. They came into a land, the, the land of Canaan, and they were a theocracy. God controlled government. And so they were given laws that were religious laws because they were a theocracy. And here we learn now that we fulfill the law in a different way. It says in Galatians 5.14, for all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, that you love your neighbor as yourself. That was one of the 613 commandments. And he says, when you love people, you fulfill the law. If you love people, you're not going to steal from them. If you love people, you're not going to murder them. If you love people, you're not going to covet what they have. If you love people, we just go on and on. You fulfill the law by love. You don't fulfill the law by keeping the law. So when someone comes and tries to lay a heavy yoke on you and tell you that you're supposed to keep the law or certain parts of the law, then you can say, I fulfill it by love. 
And by the way, this is not the only place it says that. It says it in Romans. It says it in other places. The seventh thing, the final thing that we're going to look at is that Galatians tells us to walk in the spirit, that we are to walk in the spirit and not by the law. It's replaced walking in the spirit to trying to keep the law. And listen to this verse. This is a great verse, by the way. This is a verse that I use when I'm talking to someone about temptation. When they tell me temptation is so strong, I find myself being pulled by temptation. This is one of the verses I use. He, he says in Galatians 5, 16 and 18, I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. If you make a commitment to walk in the spirit the rest of tonight, then you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And if tomorrow you say, I'm going to walk more in the spirit than I did today, then you will have less temptation tomorrow because you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. There's two other verses I tie in with this. One's the Old Testament passage that says, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. If you delight yourself in the things of this world or you delight yourself in the flesh, you're going to have fleshly desires and worldly desires. But if you delight in God, you're going to have godly desires. Jesus said, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, you will have whatever you ask. Again, our desires will change. If we abide in the word of God and we abide in Christ and Christ's word abides in us. So this is the way we combat against temptation. There's a few other things. We're taught in the Lord's Prayer. Don't lead us into temptation to pray. Lead us not into temptation. So we're taught to do that, to pray that and to deliver us from the evil one. We should be praying that on a regular basis, by the way, fervently, seriously, asking God not to lead us into temptation. Because if I'm not, and, and you say, well, how could God lead us into temptation? Some people want to change that. But the Bible says the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So God leads us to tests and those tests can turn into temptations. And so we are to pray, lead us not into temptation. I don't know about you, but I want less temptation in my life. I want less sin. One of the ways to get less sin is to be tempted less. And if I walk in the spirit, I will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And then he says this, and this is a battle that goes on inside of each one of us. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. There's this battle. You want to do spiritual things. You want to do things that are right for God, but your flesh wants to do the things that the flesh wants to do. And there's this, this pull back and forth. Later on, he's going to say, so to the flesh and from the flesh, you will reap corruption. So to the spirit and from the spirit, you will reap life. How do you walk in the spirit? By sowing to the spirit. And it's a farming analogy. You go out and sow seeds. If today you sowed seeds to your flesh, what kind of crop do you think you're going to get in the next few weeks or months? But if today you went out and sowed in your heart the spirit, what kind of a crop are you going to get in the next few weeks or months? And if tomorrow you sow to the spirit and the next day you sow to the spirit and the next day you sow to the spirit, pretty soon the crop in your life is going to be the things of the spirit, which Galatians is going to tell us is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. He then says that if you sow to the flesh and you do that every day, every day you get up, you sow to the flesh, you sow to the flesh, you sow to the flesh. 
then the works of the flesh are going to be your crop. And they are evident, which are licentiousness and adultery. And it just goes on this whole list, right? That's in Galatians where he does that. Because living by the Spirit is the way that we are no longer under the law. So he says, so I say to you, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh, for the flesh lusts against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you don't do the things that you wish. And we probably should all say amen to that. Yeah, I don't do the things I wish. I want to do spiritual things, I don't do them. I don't want to do fleshly things, and I do them. So then he says, but if you, and this is really important, this is the end of 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. There it is again. Can it get any clearer? If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. You, you might feel like I'm just beating a dead horse at this point, but I'm not. There are people that come here and try to persuade people to live by the law. Some of you guys have been approached by people in our church that have told you that we're teaching grace and we're not teaching what's true and correct. They're trying to subvert the gospel of Christ. And this needs to sink in. We need to own it. We need to be able to defend it. You need to be able to say, wait a minute. Galatians 6.18 says, if I walk in the spirit, I'm not under the law. Why are you telling me I got to be under the law? You need to be able to have that in your arsenal so that when someone tries to tell you about a works-based religion, whether it's a cult like the Jehovah Witnesses or the Mormons, or whether it's some church that has added some work, you're able to say, no, it is by grace and not by any work of the law. You need to own it so you have it. Now, I want to close with this. That... Um, this is Galatians 6.13. So now we're at the very end of the book. And this is a bonus verse, by the way. I did seven verses. Now I got a bonus verse. But here's where I want to end. I want to end this in conclusion. He says, For not even those who are circumcised keep the law. We've been talking about keeping the law and, and, or, or the Spirit or trying to keep the law and mixing it with grace. But then Paul says near the end of the book, not even the ones who, who, who are under the law keep it. No one has ever kept the law. The law was never given to be meant to be kept. It was meant to show you that you have trubs. That's what it was meant for. To, to, to amplify that you have sin in your life. There's so many verses that tell us this. Isaiah 53, all we, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each one has gone after his own way. There's no exceptions to that. It's not all, all, all we like sheep have gone astray and each one to his own way except me. No, all of us have. What is it? Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I mean, so many other things that tell us this. These guys that are telling them, you guys need to keep the law, they don't even keep it. They're not keeping it and they're laying something on you that you can't keep. Jesus said this. He said, you lay burdens on men's back that you yourself will not lift, try to lift even with one finger. And so Paul says, even those who are circumcised, um, even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you. Excuse, I'm going to go back and read that again correctly. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law 
but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. That's what they want to do. These people that teach these kind of things, they, they're not about evangelism. People, they're, they're not giving altar calls. They're not seeing people come get saved. They're just trying to persuade saved people to believe like them. You are the false gospel's evangelical field. They want to come to you and get you to be on their side. And I'm, I'm like Paul, I'm sorry to say that I've seen it happen. I've seen Christians leave grace and go under the law and go under works. And it's tragic. And I understand why Paul could be so upset and so angry when he writes this letter. It's the only letter that has this kind of tone. And may we make a commitment now in the beginning of our study of the book of Galatians that you will never let anyone put you under a yoke, which is a term Peter used in the council in Acts 15. Peter said, they put yokes on you, people. And we put no such yoke on you. Like a yoke is a, is a device that was put on an animal to help him plow or to help him pull something. So he says, we don't put a yoke on you. Don't let anyone put a yoke on you. Jesus said, if you're weary and heavy laden, come unto me and I'll give you rest for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Don't let people put you back under bondage to the law, but stand fast in the grace of Christ by which you were saved. It is sufficient. Jesus said on the cross, totalistai, it is finished. You don't need, you can't add anything. Are, are your works going to add anything to what Jesus did? The work of Christ is great on the cross, and now I'm going to do this and help myself get saved. No wonder he said, oh, foolish Galatians. Philip's translation, you bunch of idiots. How could you possibly think that? That what Christ went through on the cross wouldn't be sufficient. Stand with me, would you, and let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for all that you reveal to us through this passage. We pray, Lord, that you would do your work inside of each one of us, that we would really have this settled in our heart, that we would know that the Bible clearly teaches we are not under the law. The law is a tutor to bring us to Christ, and once we come to Christ, we are no longer in need of the tutor. We thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.